welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. that uh, as we talk about sexual immorality and divorce, that um, we can make this really simple. Anything outside of uh, what we've already unfolded, anything outside of uh, the marriage relationship is wrong, it's bad, don't do it, let's go home. Um, it, it can be that simple. Nevertheless, <clears throat> what we find in Scripture and what we also ought to embody ourselves in our teaching is that there is an assumption of, of sinful desire, of original sin, and of, and of actual sin. And we find this, we're going to see this when it comes to the teaching on divorce in Scripture, which very much um, is legislation that assumes that all sorts of things are going to go wrong, and yet here's the, here's the best way forward for mankind as a society in light of uh, the mess that we invariably make. Of our, uh, of our marriages and our families. Uh, so what we're going to do with this lecture on sexual immorality and divorce and remarriage is <clears throat> mainly uh, three things. I'm going to make some general comments, first of all, about sexual immorality, kind of its nature, um, some, some specifics, and, um, and even, even how this, some of these specifics have, have not been rightly understood uh, or, and taught in the church, in the evangelical church these days. Um, second of all, we're going to talk a little bit further about the sexual ethics of sexual union within marriage. And I want to give a little bit of a warning when I get um, for that section that I will be talking more explicitly in that section about sexual acts. Um, I do so with uh, some uh, anxiety is maybe too strong of a word, but, but you know, our, we live in a world where we need to have at least a basic conception of 
you know, some of the things that are going on out there, different things people may wrestle with or encounter in the world. And, uh, and I'll be talking about some things that I don't like to talk about. Um, and I will try to be very careful at how I speak about them. Uh, nevertheless, I will be a little bit more specific um, about those things without hopefully going into too much detail. I will try my absolute best to stay away from explicit language that is unnecessary. And then lastly, we'll finish by, um, by talking about divorce. So, um, sexual immorality, let me, let, a, let us start by recognizing that sexual immorality, because of the one flesh relationship, has a particularity to it that is unique. Uh, and we find this in Paul's teaching on sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 and following. So I'll ask you to turn there with me, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 and through to ver verse 20. Now remember in our last lecture, we unfolded a, a triad in regards to marriage, that it is a covenant relationship, it is a one flesh relationship, it is a relationship oriented towards procreation and family. But perhaps um, in relationship to this, this inward perspective of it being a one flesh relationship, we find in verse 16 that Paul says to the Corinthians, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? And then again, Genesis 2 is quoted. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Listen to this. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, notice here that in quoting from Genesis 2, that Paul is stating that there is a certain sense that you would not want to push beyond its bounds, but there is a certain sense in which when a man takes his body and joins himself to a prostitute, that he is becoming one flesh with her in a marriage-type relationship. And um, I remember having a, uh, a bit of a back and forth with a, with a seminary professor that um, in our statement as a denomination on marriage did not have, I mean, this seems so strange to me, even, even as I think about it now, looking back, that it, there was not a, that sexual union was not part of the definition of marriage. And, uh, and, I, and I, I argued from this passage that, listen, here, it, it has to be sexual because there's this relationship here. And, and, and the argument coming back is, well, you're not saying that, a, that, a, you know, that, a, uh, that this adultery is a marriage. But it's very clear that in a certain sense, it is. That's the whole point here, that marriage is defined not only by, not exclusively by, but is defined by that, by, by that one flesh sexual relationship. And this is precisely what makes sexual immorality and adultery or fornication so wrong. 
um, that it is a it is like a marriage. It's a false marriage um, because it's defined as this sexual marriage is defined as a sexual one flesh relationship. Let me give you another triad to to work with that might help you to understand. Um, some uniquenesses, some particularities with sexual immorality and why it is so heinous. Um, I believe that there are uh, three, you might say, repre representative sins that are particularly um, evil or heinous. In regards to an orientation without, uh, to God, that normative perspective, it is idolatry, right? And I think you could argue, as some theologians have done, I think it's probably a good, uh, a good argument that in a certain sense, every sin is idolatry. Um, and then in relationship to the self, uh, sexual immorality would be that sort of that, that predominating sin. And then outwardly oriented, uh, you would have murder as a, uh, as a um, sort of this representative heinous sin. Um, so even in this place, it's interesting that sexual immorality takes... Um, sort of this, this inward perspective uh, in the triad. Um, and when you sin sexually, you are sinning in a unique way against your own body, which for the believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And just as we should not unite, uh, or just as we are united to God, and that makes us holy, so we must not unite ourselves to anything that does not make us holy. And, um, and marriage and the sexual act, the sexual relationship within marriage is a holy act. Um, it doesn't, it, it never loses its character of being sort of a, a fleshly kind of activity. Um, it doesn't lose its character of being an intimate activity that, that we don't want anybody else to you know, really um, have any kind of, I mean, I was going to say we don't want anybody else to know about. I mean, obviously that people know that we're, we're having that sexual relationship within marriage, but, but we want to keep it private. We want to keep it intimate. Um, nevertheless, it is, a, it is a holy thing. So this is one of the reasons why sexual immorality is so it is against ourselves in a special sort of way, in a particular sort of way. Um, let me mention just some of the forms of sexual immorality that the Bible specifically talks about, and then I'll mention a few things perhaps that the Bible is not specific about, that, but that we might want to include in, in a list of sexual immorality. The first is fornication. Um, that is sex uh, prior to marriage. Uh, and this, this would be with somebody that, you know, you have a lot of hookup culture right now in, in our days. And, and I've, I, even, I have friends, I have neighbors that, uh, that exhibit this kind of behavior. And they, they, you know, in their pagan thinking, they just, they don't think there's anything wrong with it. Um, and in fact, even beyond hookup culture, you've got this expectation virtually uh, in our culture that you will have a sexual relationship. You will live together in that relationship prior, prior to marriage. And the scriptures say no. I mean, it's very countercultural um, teaching at this point in history to say no, that, that's actually fornication. That's wrong. Um, and one of the reasons it's wrong is because you're, you're not married yet. You haven't taken that covenant. Everything has to start with covenant. All right? So you actually see this um, 
in the story of, um, I mean, you can take a look at a number of passages, but in the story of Joseph and Mary. So again, if you're taking a look at sort of our trad tradic framework for marriage, he sees that she is with child, right? So there's the, there's the outer most visible aspect of a marriage and it's not to him, so something's wrong. What does he do? Well, he's a just man, uh, gracious man. He wants to divorce her quietly. The angel comes and says, no, don't, don't do that. Uh, you know, it, it, that's, that's God's son there inside of her. Uh, and so, again, then you have the right ordering where all of a sudden he, he actually doesn't take her in a one uh, flesh union for some time. But first he starts with the covenant. And then there's the one flesh union. And then there is, uh, at some point later on, there is the, um, the brothers and sisters of of Christ, half brothers and sisters of Christ. Um, so fornication come is, is sexual sin prior to marriage. And then you've got adultery. Um, and adultery being, again, that predominating aspect of uh, sexual immorality. It's, it's, it's interesting that we would rightfully um, think of fornication as very serious. It is. It is a very serious very serious sexual sin. Um, but there's no question that in the scriptures that adultery is the more serious sin. Uh, it's punishable by death. Um, if there was fornication prior to marriage, you know, prior to marriage, then, um, you know, there's ways to sort of, uh, at least societally, sort of make that right. Uh, adultery was punished by death, though, um, because you're forsaking your covenant. And then you've got, um, well, maybe, maybe let me, I'll come back to lust. Um, you've got homosexual behavior uh, and sodomy. Sodomy being the act that we generally is called anal sex these days. Um, but uh, traditionally, the language is sodomy, um, anal, pen, anal, anal penetration. This is, uh, again, in the Old Testament, this is punishable by, by death. Bestiality, you find, and again, these are behaviors that occur, occurred within Canaan and, and in other pagan societies. Uh, if you read anthropological uh, histories uh, like Herodotus, uh, you'll find uh, tremendous amounts of sexual immorality. Like Canaan is uh, representative; they're not just you know they're not like this outlier amongst the pagan nations. Um, incest. Be another example. Uh, sadly, some of these things are on the way to being normalized in our society. I'm going to be coming back to this in, in probably our last, probably the last lecture. Hmm. No, actually, it might be it might be next week. If I'm remembering my, my schedule uh, the right way. Um, but these things are being normalized in our culture, especially through mainstream media. Uh, I, I do not watch. I do not think Christians should entertain even the notion of watching. Uh, a show like Game of Thrones, which is renowned for its uh, sexual scenes, um, and uh, and but it, apparently incest is a big part of of those of that culture that's being depicted in that fantasy world. It's a big part of these um, these sexual scenes. Uh, so this is being normalized in our culture. Interestingly, and worth noting, um, in the Old Testament, sexual union during menstruation was uh, was was prohibited. Um, I, I personally believe that prohibition still holds. Um, there would be some theologians who would dis differ on that, but the, um, 
as you get to the New Testament and how uh, they approach the issue of blood, I think that uh, I think that that prohibition holds. Now you've got also um, the sexual immorality that lives in in the heart and the mind, and of course the words of our Lord in Matthew chapter five. Uh, he says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members that then your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Um, and here in our Lord's teaching, we, we understand the seriousness of sexual immorality and that uh, even though there is, uh, there is variation in the seriousness of different sorts of, of, of sins. Um, if I have somebody on my staff that's wrestling with lust, I'm going to treat them very differently than somebody who's wrestling with adultery. You know, um, there's, you know, the ramifications of both are, are very different and the level of sin is, is very different. Nevertheless, uh, under Christ's perfect law, in his holiness, uh, even one lustful thought is, is enough that it, you, know, you transgress the entire law, as the book of James says, and, uh, and you are destined for hell. This is, why, of course, why Christ came to save us. Um, interestingly here, the, the whole idea is that Whatever it takes in regards to sexual sin, you could, of course, this is a general principle in regards to all of our sin. Whatever it takes, get rid of it. That's the principle. Now, um, if you understand the Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, I think it's quite clear that Jesus' teaching is not meant um, to instruct us to, to literally chop off parts of our bodies or cut out parts of our bodies. Uh, that idea um, would just be uh, reprehensible to a Judeo-Christian worldview, to, to the idea that God created us whole and wants us to be whole and learn to use our whole bodies to glorify him. Um, nevertheless, the principle is there that you do, you do whatever it takes. You, you know, you, uh, if, you know, if we, moving from lust to something like pornography, if pornography is a problem, you do whatever it takes. Right? If that means you don't have a phone, okay, I don't have a phone. If that means you, you know, chuck your, your television out of your two-story house and it shatters, you know, on the ground in a pail of dust and shards, do that. Like, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Um, and some of these, you know, some of these sins, uh, there's, there's an asymmetry in regards to men being, you know, being a predominant um, consumers of pornography, but it's also a problem with women, and, and things like masturbation also occurs in women, and, and sometimes it's, it's kind of a softer form when it comes to things like um, even romantic uh, shows or novels that would have, um, yeah, there'd be sexual immorality there in, in how certain things are portrayed. Um, you would think that these things are pretty basic. To Christian theology, um, but there's a lot of erosion around the edges these days. Um, certainly, you could trace that out in regards to homosexuality, and we'll be 
may come back to that in subsequent lectures. But even when it comes to more general um, sexual immorality, uh, a very famous preacher in uh, amongst the Southern Baptists, uh, and he's a conservative, um, by the name of J.D. Greer, <clears throat> he, uh, he's quite well known, and, and he probably has some excellent sermons, some excellent stuff. I, I don't doubt that he does. Um, but he preached a sermon, somewhat famously, where he quoted from a friend of his that, um, this, is a, this is as he was exegeting Romans chapter 1, that he said that God whispers about sexual sin. God whispers about sexual sin. The idea was, I think, that was that there's other things God shouts about. He shouts about things, and I forget exactly what he, what he said the things were that God shouts about, but I think maybe pride was in there and some other things. God whispers about sexual sin. Now, this actually um, was amplified because, I don't know if you know, the plagiarism scandal uh, amongst the Southern Baptists. Well, there, maybe I wouldn't, don't do too much broad brush painting, but their, um, their president, Ed Litton, had plagiarized this particular sermon by J.D. Greer. And so you've got him saying almost exactly the same words. And what I would say to J.D. Greer and Ed Litton is, you must be reading a different Bible than I'm reading. Because the scriptures are exceptionally loud about sexual immorality. In fact, in every, I think, well, I should be careful about universal statements here. I'll say this. In almost every single sin list, sexual immorality is in there. All right? And even in some of those sin lists, some of them are really short. Uh, and it means to evoke the others. Um, sexual immorality is usually in there alongside like murder. So for instance, Ephesians 5.5 5 says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So there you've got sexual immorality and idolatry. And, and if this is you, if you're defined by sexual immorality or impurity, or covetousness, you're not getting into heaven. Right? So you better, you better kill that sin. Romans chapter 8. Revelation 21 verse 8 says this, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. All right? Now listen, our God is gracious. And he empowers us by means of the Holy Spirit. Romans, go home and read Romans chapter 8. He gives us the power to say no to sin and to put to death the deeds of the body that we may live. But there needs to be a, a repentance. There needs to be a turn away. There needs to be a ruthless dealing with sin um, such that we can conquer this sexual immorality that um, may be in very obvious parts of our lives, maybe at, at a kind of a subtler level with, when it comes to things like lust and, and things in our heart or in our minds. Um, let me move to sexual ethics within marriage. Um, and I'm going to share some thoughts that I, uh, I don't usually share. I, I, uh, I wouldn't share all of these from the pulpit necessarily. Some of them I have. Uh, I do share these, these sorts of things when it comes to our marriage counseling. And um, so I'm going to, um, these are the sorts of things that I would tell to those who are getting ready for marriage uh, as far as making sure that your sexual relationship is, um, is godly and is ethical. So 
and, and perhaps especially when it comes to the fact that you do have these asymmetries in the marriage relationship where men are, they, they take initiative, they're more risk takers, they also tend to have stronger sexual drives. These are not bad things, these are good things. Uh, if men didn't have stronger sexual drives, you, you, you know, human race would probably die out. Um, men see a woman that they desire, and I don't mean just sexually, or even predominantly sexually, but then, okay, that, that's the impetus now to, especially in our culture, to, to take the risk and, and to, uh, to approach that woman and, and want to take her as a wife. So these things aren't bad, but of course, they, you know, on the flip side, it can be dangerous. And in fact, men can sometimes lead their wives into sexual immorality within marriage. Um, and so it, it's important that we have a strong ethic for marriage. And, and of course, these days, there's very little that is taboo anymore. Um, and some of the sexual practices of the world have crept into marry, many a marriage bed. So let me mention a few things. First of all, um, the scriptures talk about sodomy in the Old Testament, uh, what is called anal sex in, in our world. Uh, and there is a significant rise. Um, studies have, can plot this out. There's a significant rise in uh, what is called um, anal sex. And not just within, in relationship to homosexual behavior, but also significantly amongst heterosexuals as well, and even young people. Uh, it is a highly dangerous and immoral practice. Um, I am, uh, there, there, is, there is no Christian theologian throughout history until the last like 30 years that has argued that, that anal sex is a, is a permissible practice for a Christian. Um, uh, doctors who, you know, don't care anything about, you know, gay marriage or may fully support gay marriage will tell you that the anus was never designed for penetration. So um, that is a that is a prohibited behavior for the Christian. There was actually a, a Christian teacher just a little while ago, twenty years ago, that was um, saying that this was a, a permissible activity for for Christians, and I, I think that that's. Um, I, I, I just think that's it's wrong. I was going to use the word abominable. Maybe that would be slightly, slightly too harsh. But I think this is a, a strictly prohibited behavior. Um, uh, when it comes to uh, oral sex, um, fellatio or cunnilingus, it may be within the boundaries of permissible sexual behavior. Maybe a matter of conscience. Um, but uh, let me put down one boundary that has always existed in the history of Christian theology. Right. Um, all commentators that have ever commented on this have stated uh, without fail that there must not be the taking of the man's seed orally uh, or ingesting it. Right? That, that's, there, there's, no, there's no historical Christian theology that would say that that's permissible. Um, and I agree. We start to think through the, the symbolism and the meaning of our bodies and, and man's seed and what it's for. Um, that's a, that's a prohibited behavior. Um, any, any practice that would violate the exclusivity of the sexual union um, is, is, is strictly prohibited. So things like looking at pornography together or, um, yeah, or even you know, imagining someone other than your spouse within the sexual uh, act. The, any, anything that would compromise the complete exclusivity of the marriage is, uh, is wrong. So moving from that to contraception, now this is interesting. 
uh, and, and debatable or highly debated, challenging kind of topic. Um, some of you may be aware that for the vast majority of the church's history, contraception using drugs or potions, and actually contraception has been around for a millennia, all right? It's not, it's not something new. It's been highly developed. There's new ways of doing it, but it's not a new phenomenon. Um, throughout church history, it's been considered prohibited. You need to wrestle with that, okay? Why? Why has, you know, until the last uh, hundred years, why has it been prohibited? And I think that the kind of answer, I, frankly, I don't think a lot of, I think a lot of Christians don't even ask the question. They go, you know, what they say is, well, uh, everybody I know is, you know, maybe they don't want to have children for the first few years of, of their marriage, so they're going to go on the pill. Um, as Christians, we need to think a lot more deeply than that. Now, I think that there may be room for conscience decisions on this issue, uh, but let me state where I do believe there are firm boundaries. Uh, any contraceptive practice that might be abortifacient, that is, that might cause an abortion, must not be used. It is to be prohibited. Um, and this means not only things like, um, like intrauterine implants, but also the pill. The pill, Randy Alcorn has done some excellent work on this issue. Um, I, I honestly, when I got married, I, I didn't know this. I didn't know that the pill, uh, for starters, has all sorts of side effects. Because um, you're, you're messing with, with your hormones. But also that it, it very, very, very may, may very well, that's the right way to say it, may very well, uh, cause, cause abortions. They, the doctors actually, and, and the, um, those who put together the drugs, they actually do not know for certain how it functions, only that it works. There's some ambiguity about how it works. And uh, if you want more information, I encourage you to look up some of the um, information that, that Randy Alcorn has put together on this. So within the aspect of, of sort of permissibility or conscience, um, what I think we ought to wrestle with, though, is the fact that you are acting against the good in contraception. Okay? You're acting, and that's, of course, what it exactly means. You're acting against contraception. You're acting against the good. And you need to wrestle with that. The scriptures say that children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb are reward. Now, as many do in this culture, many, I mean, just um, think about the amount of families that deliberately only have one or two children. Um, think about the amount of young uh, couples that have dogs instead of children, right? I mean, this is, this is the world we live in. Um, clearly, they are not thinking about children as this great thing that they, they desire, greatly desire. It's a reward. Um, so frankly, a lot of our world doesn't, doesn't believe that, doesn't live like that, but Christians are to view children as a reward. And they're supposed to do the hard work of not just thinking, oh, look, here's the wonderful children the Lord has given me, their reward, but to actually think about the fact that if I have more children, they too will be a reward. Um, so here's the general principle. Here's the general principle that I think we should wrestle with. You should have as many children as the Lord allows through a regular practice of sexual union within marriage apart from significant reasons not to, 
like serious health concerns. Okay? Now, there may be other things. There may be other things that would fall under that sort of significant reasons not to. Um, but, but I think that the general impetus there, the general principle needs to be children are uh, a reward, a heritage. We want to have more. Like that, that should be the basic thinking of the Christian within marriage. Now let's deal finally with divorce. And um, Pastor Tim, can you just flash how many minutes I have? And I'll deal with it in however many minutes I have. Great, 10 minutes. So that's perfect. I usually deal with this in uh, 45 minutes. So 10 minutes should be about right. Uh, <laughs> so um, divorce, there is a, um, let's start with the fact that God hates to divorce, hates divorce. And that divorce um, means that there is sin in the marriage. There, there cannot be divorce without sin. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that there will be that the sin will be equal, um, or even that the divorce may be significantly the fault of one or the other. Um, it may be radically asymmetrical. It might be kind of radically one person's fault. Um, that that certainly does happen. Um, and, and, so, and so God hates divorce, but, but God legislates things in his word that presume sin because God in his grace wants to keep the effects of sin in this world contained, confined, and from spreading. And so God gives uh, rules for divorce. And, um, and I wanted us to take a look at a couple of passages very, very quickly. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Now, as we go there, some of you may still be turning there. Let me mention, before getting here, that um, in Exodus 21, st stay here in De Deuteronomy 22, or 24, Sorry, or where are we? No, we are Deuteronomy 22. Um, Uh-oh. No, sorry. I've got two different... Uh, sorry, you do want to be at Deuteronomy 24. Sorry, turn over a couple pages. Um, Deuteronomy 22 has got some good stuff too, but um, kind of, a, kind of a, yeah, a, an aside passage there. Um, but in Exodus 21, we get rules concerning a man who takes a slave wife. And it says, fascinating, excellent legislation, where it says that if he takes another wife to himself after taking that slave wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Okay? So this, these were the rights that a woman had in ancient Israel that even as a slave who became his wife, um, he was, she had rights to his body. Yeah, that's, that's quite something. That's quite something. Um, very good legislation. And in fact, if he did not do all these three, these things, three things for her, she was, to, she was to be set free. So lots of protections for women in this society, and even for slaves. Now, with that in the background, that the man has responsibilities, or else she can, you know, she can leave, we come to Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, 
and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who takes her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. And then note this, after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, I want you to notice something that's not perhaps initially clear. And that is that the defilement is not when this woman, having left her first husband and, and having now left the second, or, or in this case, it's the man sending her away, uh, the, the defilement is not when she goes back to the first. Okay? That's assumed in the passage. But if you read it, the defilement is when she left the, or he sent away the, the woman, the first man sent away the, the woman, and she went to a second husband. Now that's interesting. Why is that interesting? Because it assumes that that's what's going to happen in a divorce. Okay? And, and here's the important thing, that in the ancient world, um, throughout history, with, I'm not aware of any exceptions, and in scripture as well, divorce is for the purpose of remarriage. That's why you get a divorce. You get a divorce so that somebody can remarry. Okay? Now, in the New Testament, Paul speaks about this and he says, don't, don't necessarily, be careful, don't necessarily assume that if there's a separation that you should be, that you should be remarried. Okay? Nevertheless, this is the cultural assumption and it's the assumption of scripture. But here's the thing is that in the scriptures, it assumes that there is some sort of defilement. Why? Because that one flesh relationship has been ripped apart. It's permitted in certain situations. And Jesus talks about this. This wasn't from the beginning, but you know, this isn't the best case scenario by any means. But I gave you some legislation to protect things, to protect society. All right? And in fact, when Jesus talks about divorce, uh, and in fact, in, the, in probably the hardest section uh, on divorce, which is in Matthew, I believe, uh, what passage is it? Um, I forget exactly what the passage was. Um, but when he talks about this, um, when he talks about divorce, and he says that if anybody, if you divorce your wife, if anybody remarries that woman, she commit, that, that there's adultery. Uh, and what it's doing is it's assuming this same situation. It's assuming that even though divorce is permitted in certain situations, and even though when there is a divorce, there is a permitted remarriage, that there is this sort of this, whether you call it adultery using New Testament language or whether you call it um, a defilement using Old Testament language, that there is a, um, something that goes much further than just like this isn't the best case scenario. That there is, there is significant and irreparable harm and damage to, to you know, the couple, to children, to family. And you see this in the, um, in the literature on divorce and its effects. Uh, it has, it has wide-ranging effects. So here are, here are, just to finish up, here's my thought on, on divorce. In summary, divorce is terrible, it's heinous, get married with the pledge that you will not divorce and you would rather die than get divorced. For those within the church, however, that have undergone a divorce, 
where there is repentance, my best understanding of scripture is that where there is repentance, there is the possibility of remarriage. Uh, and, that, and that people ought to make a thorough search of themselves and, and with the church and the elders, uh, and that for the good of, of a messed up society, that God did give legislation to permit uh, what is far, you know, far from a best case scenario. Um, but God's, you know, Christ's teaching is, listen, in the beginning, father, you know, uh, a man leaves his father and his mother, uh, he holds fast to his wife, they become one flesh, and that that is for life. As we teach. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures, or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.